you would turn in your bulletins, we're going to be looking at James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We're going to be continuing what we looked at in James chapter 3 from last week, that our words matter. That our words, in fact, are not just ephemeral and non-existent, but they actually do something. So the good works that James talks about are actually what you and I say with our mouths. And it has great power, like a bit and bridle in the mouth of a horse or a rudder in a boat. It has great power to be able to do great things. But it can also be like a spark that starts a fire and destroys everyone in its wake. And so James is continuing this conversation that that what we say matters, and it matters in our interpersonal relationships with one another. The off-color jokes, the cowardly gossip at the, at the water cooler, ignorant slander behind closed doors that you may not understand everything of what's going on, judgmental indictments on other people who are not like you, Drawing near to those who are like you to the exclusion of those who don't look like you. These are all works that are produced from what is inside of us. A tree produces fruit because of what it is, not because of some external circumstance. What we say and do are not the result are not the result of circumstances or what happens outside of us, but it is the circumstances that actually bring forth the fruit. From what's inside. And so we have to drill down a little deeper. And that's what James is going to do today. And he ended chapter 3 by saying this. He said in verse 17 of chapter 3, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I shared a prayer with with you all last week that we as a church, as Christ the Redeemer, would be a people that talk to each other and not about each other. That we would do the hard work of when someone is getting on our nerves, that we first give them the benefit of the doubt. Or if somebody hurts our feelings, we give them the benefit of the doubt and then we go to them in love and do the hard work of actually talking to them instead of about them. That's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to risk them not liking you. It's a hard thing to tell someone the truth in love. And yet James is telling us, like a bit in a a horse's mouth and like a rudder in a boat, you have the opportunity God gives you every single day to do great good with your mouth. And what does it do? It requires that you and I care more about other people than we care about ourselves. That's hard. And it reminds us of what Jesus said. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who are pursuing shalom, those who are producing peace in the world around them. Blessed are those because they will be called children of God. And so we are to be proactive in our living in the world and not passive and say, they made me do this. They made me angry. So James is going to get into that, isn't he, in chapter 4. I have to confess that last week I said that that was the hardest passage I had to work on for a sermon because of what God was doing in my life with my tongue and how I use it. Um, 
Now, this chapter has become the hardest chapter in preparing for a sermon. In fact, I've, I've, I've read it, and I'd put it away. I'd say, yeah, I don't really want to go there, because if anybody knows me, I am a type A person. I'm a driven person, and that kind of person is given to anger. In fact, this past week, I had, I had been very, very mean to my wife and children. And so I said, I just need to go, and I got on our treadmill, and I started running, and I started running really hard, and I was running as hard as I could until my heart was beating so fast, and I was thinking about James chapter 4, and I was, I was broken. I started crying on the treadmill, and I had to stop. I don't know about y'all, but I'm tired of being angry. I'm tired of looking at other people and saying, they made me do this. They made me angry. I'm weary of fighting with other people because they don't do what I want them to do. And if you find yourself in that boat, I realize that not everyone struggles with that, but this is a message for all of us today because at some level we are going to have conflict with other people. And when we butt heads with others, that's God's opportunity to shine light into the dark places where of our hearts because it's not the situation, it's what's in our hearts. It's the fruit that we're bringing out with our mouths, with our shunning of other people. And God would have a word for you today if you are struggling, if you are looking at others and find that you have frustration and quarrels and fights in those relationships. Brothers and sisters, I'm tired of quarreling and fighting over trying to get my own way because I think I know what's right. And if you find yourself in that same boat, I think James would have a word for you this morning. Because in every church, in every city, in every country, in creation, there's fighting, there's strife. Even in James, we looked at the very first message in James. This is a message to those who are being persecuted. Those are the ones who are being sent out throughout the Roman Empire. James is writing to this diaspora, right? In chapter, uh, chapter 1, he says, This is to all the tribes of Israel in the diaspora. Those who are spread out because of the persecution that happened that we read about in Acts. And you would think that those who are undergoing persecution aren't going to struggle with having fights. You're going to say, man, we're, we're getting beat up from the outside. But you see that there are. James shows us that even as early as this time, the church was struggling with strife in their church. In fact, if you read any accounts, in, in Nazi Germany, you would think that those who were in the concentration camps wouldn't have issues with themselves. You'd think that they would have issues with the Nazis. But if you read any book by Elie Wiesel or by um, Viktor Frankl, You'll see these accounts of even in the concentration camps, there was fighting among those who were being persecuted because the problem was not outside. The problem was inside, in the heart. And so James tells us that what is around us, people and circumstances, simply are a stage for the wars and strife and struggles within. If you would, look at verse 1 of our passage today. Verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. What causes these things? Your passions at war within you. What's a typical reaction you have? 
maybe the same typical reaction that I have when I'm in a fight with someone. I point the finger and I start to blame. You looked at me funny. You said that cross word. You didn't acknowledge me. You didn't listen to me. You, 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 you. How dare they do that to me? Who do you think you are talking to me like that? Who do you think you are? But James tells us that it's not them over there. It's we in here. That's the problem. Our hearts are the problem. All of our strivings and plans, these are the problem. Look at verse 2. He goes a little deeper. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. A reference to his brother Jesus. You murder in your hearts when you have anger towards someone. So you murder. You covet and can't obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. When you do ask, you don't get it because you ask wrongly. You ask so that you can spend the things you're asking on your passions to fulfill your desire. Friends, as much as we want to blame situations and people for our anger problem, you and I need to realize that these are just things that God, the sovereign God, has put into your life. He's put those things into our life to reveal to us what's on the inside, who we really are. To bring to light what is hidden in the heart. Like little monsters that are hidden in the basement. And that we pretend aren't there. When we hear something go bump in the basement. When we get a quick reaction. We don't think that there's a monster in the basement. But he's there. And see circumstances and people aren't tools and obstacles in your life. They're the very things that God gives you in your life to be flashlights. To go down the creaky stairs into the basement to reckon with the monster that's in your heart. People are God's gift to you to shine the bright light of grace and mercy in your life. But that grace and mercy can't be there until you acknowledge that there's a problem. And it's not out there. It's in here. It's in my heart. It's in the basement. It's in the dark. That I pretend that's not there. And God says, I love you so much that I'm not going to let you pretend anymore. So I'm going to put that annoying person in your life. I'm going to put that person that frustrates you in your life. I'm going to put that argument in your life to bring it to light. And the question that James has for us is, will you go down to the creaky stairs and find out that in the basement it's a lot dirtier than you would expect? And a lot of times we call anger a lot of things, don't we? We don't want to call it murder, like Jesus. We'll call it, I'm just frustrated with Sally. Or I'm irritated. Or they rubbed me the wrong way. Have you ever paused the button in your life and said, why are they annoying? Why are they frustrating me? Why are they rubbing me the wrong way? Quite simply, it's rooted in the assumption, and you may never say this out loud because I don't typically say it out loud, that the world revolves around you. We have this uncanny expectation that everyone should know what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, and that they should serve me because the world revolves around me. This is just your world, and we're living in it. 
But that's not the case, is it? Not truly, but that's the way we want the world to work. Grocery line too long? Mm. Traffic? Mm. Coworker? Mm. And it gets progressively worse, doesn't it? Because we want people to, to serve us. Not just love us. We want them to obey us. We want them to do our bidding when we say it, how we say it, and we want them to jump so high. One of my favorite short stories by Flannery O'Connor is called Revelation. I warn you, it's a very raw short story, and it's not for the faint of heart. I reread it this week in preparing for this message, and I was numb after I read it. It's very powerful language. And it's very revealing to the human heart. In this story, it's set in a doctor's waiting room. And just like in any other doctor's waiting room, you'd see a lot of different kinds of people. And that's no different than this doctor's waiting room. There are a variety of people. There's a prim and proper older lady with her really angry teenage daughter reading a book. Just looking at her book and reading it. Angry at the world. There's a few disheveled poor people in the mix. One of, the, one of them has a snotty-nosed little boy that she won't correct or she won't take out and won't wipe his face. And he's really dirty and nasty. There's a farmer. And then there's a really proper lady named Mrs. Turpin. Mrs. Turpin looks around the room in this waiting room and she starts sizing everyone up. Oh, that's a trashy person. Oh, that man's obviously poor. Huh. Look at those shoes. Oh, that lady there. That lady looks like me. I think I'll start a conversation with her. And so Mrs. Turpin, like you and like me, looks at the world through the lens simply of it revolving around her. Of whether these individual people made in God's image serve her or not. And when this happens... When you and I start to look around, people cease to be people. They become tools that we'll use to advance our agenda, or they become obstacles getting in our way to accomplishing what we really want to accomplish. That's what happens when you and I make ourselves the center of our worlds. We manipulate, and then we worry, and then we get anxious, and then we coerce people to do what we want them to do because they are merely a means to an end and not an end in themselves. You see, the problem with pride and the problem with Mrs. Turpin is the problem that every one of us has is that we don't know we're proud because we look at them and we're like, oh, that's gross. I could never be that. No. The problem is, is that we are proud people. When we are looking at others, sizing them up, putting them in our little categories, adjudicating whether they're worthy of conversation or whether they're worthy of my time or not. But see, the gracious piece of all of this is that, like Mrs. Turpin, the gracious piece is that God is calling out to you, proud person. You may not believe you're proud, but, but what James is doing, he's deductively reasoning. He's, he's saying, look at your life. And then deduce what's true. Is there strife in your life? Are there difficult relationships? Is there quarreling with other people? Is there pain because of other people? Are you, is there judgment that you're having on other people? Is there an entitlement to getting treated a certain way? James is saying if these things are true, 
then you're proud. Quite simply. If there's strife, if there's struggle, if there's quarreling, there's pride. Look at verses 11 and 12. We're going we're to come back to verses 4 through 10 in a moment. But look at verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Talking about the law of liberty that we looked at a few weeks ago. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver, and you're not him. And there's only one judge, and you are not him. He who is able to save and to destroy. And who are you to judge your neighbor? See, our problems, our strife in life first stems from an improper view of ourselves. We believe that we're more important than we are. So we judge. We believe that we have the right to classify and judge everybody around us. Are speaking evil, even behind closed doors, with a spouse, with a friend, about that person over there, even that speaking of evil sets us as the judge and jury over that person's life. Oh, I, I know everything about them. I can't believe they're struggling with that. I'd never struggle. Come on. Yeah, you may not struggle with that, but ask anybody who knows you, and they'll let you know what you're struggling with, if they're honest with you. We think we see clearly enough to then write a placard over people's lives and say, that person's not worthy. That person is worthy of my time, energy, and resources. And James says, who are you, O oh man, O oh woman? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to set your place as God who understands everything about everyone? Secondly, This wrong view of ourselves can be seen in that we believe that the inhabitants of the world exist to serve us. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. See, what James is saying here, he's talking to people who say, I'm going to do this. And this is going to happen. I'm going to go to the DMV, and then I'm going to get my driver's license in a few minutes. I'm going to get my license in a few minutes. I'm going to go to the grocery store, and I'm going to, everything's going to work out just nicely. And then all of a sudden, you sit down in the DMV, and you wait. Because you realize that it's not really there to serve you, is it? You see, James is saying, you're not going to make it happen. If it's going to happen, it's going to be by sheer grace. You're going to get your driver's license by grace. Sure, we're called called to make plans and work diligently. That's not what James is talking about. He's not not talking about fatalism here. Say, it doesn't matter. Hey, don't talk about today or tomorrow because, hey, don't, don't do that. No, he's not talking about fatalism. He's talking about a pride that says, I am the captain of this ship. And everyone needs to do my bidding. He's leveling his sights at the pride that believes that we determine the way the world works. And if we're honest, isn't this where much of our anger, where most of it comes from? It comes from the fact that we want to be in control of everyone else. Not just situations, but people. But people. The kids don't listen. 
or do what you want them to do immediately when you say it, how you say it. Maybe even this morning as you were coming to church, people weren't getting in the car when you wanted them to. Maybe a coworker goes on and on and on and on and on about her life. And she makes the wrong assumption that you care about her enough to listen. Your parents give you advice. Your neighbors rub you the wrong way. But James is saying, don't try to just get past the friction in your life. Spend the hard work of saying, why is this hurting so bad? One of my favorite things I used to do was to watch um, restoration of old cars. I love watching old cars getting restored back to their original glory. Um, have you ever seen the process of how you restore metal at all? I wish I, this is the point I wish I had a video to show you. It's, it's amazing. So you take this rusted, grimy piece from the 1950s or this car, say it's a 57 Chevy, and you put it where it gets sandblasted. And so that sandblasting clears off all the rust and the grime. But that's not done yet. It's not done yet. So then it has to go through ceramic stones to then get tumbled in those ceramic stones, tossed to and fro by all of that friction seeking to polish it. Sometimes that's not even enough. Sometimes it even has to go through a chemical bath where it is burning off all the crud. And that's what God is saying to you is don't just try to get through the friction. Sit in that and say, why am I so frustrated right now? Why is this person rubbing me the wrong, rubbing me the wrong, tumbling me, rolling me, hurting me, frustrating me to get the rust and the grime and the crud off of your life? To make you the kind of person that God created you to be. So, what is James's remedy for this pride of judgmentalism in using other people? What's his remedy? He reminds us that we are merely inhabitants of the world. We are mere ants, just like everyone else. We're small and we're passing away. Look at verses 14 to 16. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Brothers and sisters, the world does not exist for us. We exist for the world we exist to shine forth the grace and the mercy and the love of God in our lives. But it doesn't exist for you and me just to think that it revolves around us and that we're entitled to a certain way that things need to be. But when we strive after our own notoriety, when we harbor resentment because of what someone did to us, we're enslaving ourselves to our own pride. We're shackling ourselves up to vindication of ourselves. Instead of thinking that these things and these annoyances and these frustrations 
are happening to you, these things are always and ever happening for you to make you a more Christ-like person. When Jesus was reviled, what did he do? He opened out his mouth. He gave his cheek to those who slapped him. That we read about in Jeremiah 11. What did he do? He did not revile back, but he received it. And then he said, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Thirdly, our wrong view isn't just that we think we're more important than other people. And that others exist to serve us. And that the world is here for me. Something far more sinister. You remember Mrs. Turpin? Well, as she continues to talk to this other lady in the waiting room, the young teenage girl who's reading her book is getting angrier and angrier. And her face is just getting red with this anger because she knows the kind of woman that this person is who's judging everyone around her. And she's getting more and more infuriated by Mrs. Turpin and how she's putting every other, pe- every other person down. Because you think you may be able to hide that judgmentalism, but if it's in your heart, it'll come out. It'll come out towards other people. And people know that. And so this teenage girl gets more angry as Miss Turpin continues to put on more airs. It's clear that Miss Turpin thinks she's better than not just half the people in the room, but everyone else in the room. And so this teenage girl hits her limit. She takes the book that she's reading and she throws it at Mrs. Turpin, hits her in the head, and then you'd think that would be it. She starts yelling at her. Well, no, the teenage girl jumps on top of her and starts choking Mrs. Turpin. And she calls her an old warthog from the pits of hell. Well, they pull off the old teenage, the, the teenage girl off of, off of Mrs. Turpin. They check her neck. They call the ambulance. They call the cops. And they try to figure out what in the world just happened. Well, Mrs. Turpin goes back to her house, and she's saying, how, how dare that girl think that she could ever do that to me? And then she starts saying, God, why would you ever allow that to happen to me? I'm, I'm an upstanding citizen. I, I go to church every Sunday. I take care of those poor people. I do all the right things. I, I'm a church-going woman. I'm, I'm refined. I, I take care of myself. And then finally, in a rage, what does Mrs. Turpin do? She goes from this, like, why, why would you do this, God, to... This is where the sinister part is that she starts shaking her fist at God. And she goes, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, God, to do this to me? You have no right to do this to me. You see... That's really at what's at root in our quarreling, in our fighting, isn't it? Look at verse 3 again. We're going to go back now. We're going to work through the rest of this paragraph. He says, you ask and do not receive. Who are you supposed to ask? You're supposed to ask God. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. It's true that our quarrels and our fights stem from our heart. But our wars and our striving and our frustrations with other people preeminently comes from our problem with God. Your quarreling and your fighting with others is not about other people. That quarreling and fighting is between you and God. You see, this is a war of allegiances, both inside of you and between you and God. Who will you call master? 
Yourself or God? But even more so, it's about love. Who will you love more? God or the world? God or being right? God or yourself? This is a war about love. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, James makes it clear that when we are fighting with others, it's because we have abandoned our very first and only true love, God. We've left him and his ways behind and pursued a world where our satisfaction and pleasure is of paramount importance. To be a friend of the world means that your mind and your energy, your resources, your heart are more concerned with your comfort and believing the lie that life is all about you. That's what friendship with the world is. That what you see is what you get. When you have a friend, what do you do? You spend time together, don't you? You spend, we, we, we read earlier that Abraham was called a friend of God. I would encourage you to take some time to put those pieces together. What does it mean to be a friend of the world and friend of God? Well, Abraham was a friend of God. So you spend time together. You begin to eat together. You, and through conversation, you begin to change. You begin to change the way you view the world, the way you think about yourself. You begin to be shaped by God himself. And now that we see clearly this problem is in our hearts, and, and yet it's also in our conflict with God, how are we supposed to fix this? How are you and I supposed to get down in that heart, into that basement, and let God do a work. That's how we do it. Look at verse, verses 4 through 6. You adulterous people who have abandoned your first love, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here's the answer. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He, speaking of God, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jealous person, God is calling out to you. You don't have to compare yourself with anybody anymore. You can be free from worrying if you are enough. You don't have to covet anymore. Judgmental person, who thinks you see the world so clearly, God is calling out to you this morning. Person who uses other people for your own benefit, God is calling out to you this morning. Frustrated person, God is calling out to you this morning. Angry person, God, in His grace, He's calling out to you this morning. Because friends, you're not on your own to figure it out. Isn't that the beauty of the gospel? You are not on your own to figure it out. The answer is that God Himself yearns jealously over you to bring you to Himself. God doesn't want to abandon you to your passions 
into your proclivity to fight with other people. God doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to come, and He's coming to you, and He's saying, Will you listen? Will you come to me that you might receive healing? He's yearning jealously over you so that the jealous person isn't jealous anymore, but they are converted and changed. He wants you. You're not too sinful to touch. But if you try and fix yourself, James makes it clear that you have no part in God. If you're going to be proud and say, I've got this, you will have no part in God. He's opposed to the person who sits in judgment over others. And he's he's opposed to the person who refuses to ask for help. You see that? He opposes the proud. He's not just putting up with the proud. He is at odds. He's an enemy of all those who would say, I don't need that. And so the very first step, what is it? What's the answer? It's to come to God. To find healing in God. Look at verses 7 through 10. We're going to end here. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves. Ask for help. Seek the Lord. Come to the Lord. Draw near to Him and He will draw near to you. How do you wash your hands? By drawing near to God first. By saying, He is the one who will cleanse my hands from their unrighteous deeds and He's the one who can cleanse my heart from my unrighteousness. Him and Him alone. It's good. It is good to sit and weep over our sin. It is good to be broken over our fighting and our quarreling and not just giving in and saying, well, that's just the way it is. That's not the way it was intended to be. What a beautiful picture of people who would say, I'm going to die to my love for vindication and retribution and righteousness That because, you know what, I only see in part. But God sees the whole picture and he knows what he's doing. And so as you're being rubbed and friction is being built up, God would say to you, angry person, frustrated person, quarreling person, come to me and I will cleanse you. I will bring healing to you. Let go of your attempts at self-righteousness and ability to make it right and come to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that I am ill-equipped in my own life to speak with any authority on this. And yet you remind us that you give grace to those who confess. So Father, would you continue to do your work by your Spirit for the glory of your Son, Jesus? 
in shaping us, in molding us, and in making us more like him. Do it through our quarreling and through our fighting, and may we realize that we are but a mist, and that we exist for your glory, and not for ourselves, but we have been bought, and we belong to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.